Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 38 A Family in a Very Small Way We must now make inquiries at Fulham about some friends whom we have left there. How is Mrs. Amelia? Is she living and thriving? What has become of Major Dobbin? And is there any news of the collector of Boggley Walla? The facts about him are briefly these. Our worthy friend Joseph Sedley returned to India not long after his escape from Brussels, soon after Napoleon had been confined to St. Helena. To hear Mr. Sedley talk on board ship, you would have supposed that he had confronted the French general personally. He had a thousand tales about the famous battles. He knew the position of every regiment. He did not deny that he had carried dispatches for the Duke of Wellington. He described what the Duke did and said at Waterloo with such accurate knowledge that it was clear he must have been by the conqueror's side throughout the day. Perhaps he actually worked himself up to believe that he had been engaged with the army. Certainly, he made a sensation for some time at Calcutta, and was called Waterloo Sedley during his stay in Bengal. His agents had orders to pay £120 yearly to his parents at Fulham. It was the couple's chief support, for old Mr. Sedley's speculations did not succeed. He tried to be a wine merchant, a coal merchant, and a lottery agent, He sent round prospectuses and ordered a new brass plate for the door and talked pompously about making his fortune. But fortune never came back to the feeble old man. His friends dropped off, weary of buying dear coals and bad wine from him. He used to go of nights to a little club at a tavern where he talked about millions, what Rothschild was doing, and Bering Brothers. "'I was better off once, sir,' he told everybody. "'My son, sir, is chief magistrate of Rumgungeon, Bengal. "'I might draw upon my son, sir, for two thousand pounds tomorrow. "'But the Sedleys were always a proud family.' "'Had Mrs. Sedley been a woman of energy, she would have taken in boarders. "'The broken Sedley would have acted well as a boarding-house carver and steward.' But Mrs. Sedley had not spirit enough for that. She was content to lie on the shore where fortune had stranded her, and you could see that the career of this old couple was over. I don't think they were unhappy. Perhaps they were a little prouder in their downfall than in their prosperity. Mrs. Sedley was always a great person for her landlady, Mrs. Clapp. The Irish maid's bonnets and ribbons... Her sauciness, her idleness, her reckless prodigality of candles amused the old lady almost as much as the doings of her former household when she had a regiment of female domestics. 
And besides, Betty, Mrs. Sedley had all the maids in the street to superintend. On Sundays, it was old Sedley's delight to take his little grandson, Georgie, to the neighboring parks or Kensington Gardens, to see the soldiers or to feed the ducks. Georgie loved the redcoats, and his grandpapa told him how his father had been a famous soldier and introduced him to many sergeants and others wearing Waterloo medals, to whom the old grandfather pompously presented the child as the son of Captain Osborne, who died gloriously on the glorious 18th. He spoiled little Georgie, sadly gorging the boy until Amelia declared that George should never go out with his grandpapa unless the latter promised solemnly not to give the child any cakes or lollipops. Between Mrs. Sedley and her daughter, there was a coolness about this boy and a secret jealousy. For one evening in George's very early days, Amelia ran upstairs to the nursery at the cries of the child, who had been asleep until that moment, and there found Mrs. Sedley surreptitiously giving him Daffy's elixir. Amelia, the gentlest of everyday mortals, trembled all over with anger. Her pale cheeks flushed up. She seized the baby from her mother's arms and grasped the bottle, leaving the old lady gaping at her and holding the guilty teaspoon. Amelia flung the bottle, crushing it into the fireplace. I will not have baby poison, Mamma, she cried, turning with flashing eyes at her mother. Poison, Amelia! He shall not have any medicine but that which Mr. Pestler sends. He told me that Daffy's elixir was poison. Oh, so, very good, you think I'm a murderess, replied Mrs. Sedley. This is the language you used to your mother. I have sunk low in life, but I did not know I was a murderess. And thank you for the news. Mamma, said the poor girl, who was always ready for tears. I didn't mean, I, I did not wish to say you would do any wrong to the dear child, only, oh, oh, no, no, my love. "'Only that I was a murderess, though I didn't poison you when you were a child, but gave you the best education money could buy. Oh, yes, I've nursed five children and buried three, and the one I loved the best of all, and tended through croup and measles and whooping cough, and brought up with foreign masters regardless of expense.' which I never had when I was a girl, says I'm a murderess. Mamma, mamma, cried the bewildered girl, and the child in her arms set up a frantic chorus of shouts. Pray to God to cleanse your wicked, ungrateful heart, Amelia, and may he forgive you as I do. And Mrs. Sedley tossed out of the room. Till the end of her life, this breach between Mrs. Sedley and her daughter was never thoroughly mended. The elder lady scarcely spoke to Amelia for many weeks. She warned the domestics not to touch the child, as Mrs. Osborne might be offended. She asked her daughter to satisfy herself that there was no poison in the little daily messes that were concocted for Georgie. When neighbors asked after the boy's health, she referred them pointedly to Mrs. Osborne. She would not touch the child, although he was her own precious darling, for she might kill him. 
and whenever Mr. Pestler called, she received the doctor with such a sarcastic manner that he declared that even Lady Thistlewood could not give herself greater airs than old Mrs. Sedley, from whom he never took a fee. Very likely Emmy was jealous, too, as what mother is not, of those who would manage her children for her. When anybody nursed the child, she was uneasy, and she would no more allow Mrs. Clapp to tend him than she would have let them wash her husband's miniature, which hung in the room in which he retired now for many silent, tearful, but happy years. In this room was all Amelia's heart and treasure. Here she tended her boy and watched him through the many ills of childhood with a constant passion of love. The elder George returned in him somehow, only improved as if come back from heaven. In a hundred little ways the child was so like his father that her heart thrilled. She talked constantly to him about this dead father, and spoke of her love for George to the innocent and wondering child. To her parents she never talked about this matter, but into little George's uncomprehending ears she poured her sentimental secrets. Most men who came near her loved her, though they would be at a loss to tell you why. She was not brilliant, nor witty, nor extraordinarily handsome, but she charmed every one of the male sex as invariably as she awakened the scorn and incredulity of her own sisterhood. I think it was her weakness which was her principal charm, a kind of sweet submission which seemed to appeal to men for sympathy and protection. In the regiment, the young officers would have leapt to fight round her, and so it was in the little circle at Fulham, where she interested and pleased everybody. Mr. Linton, the doctor's young assistant, openly declared himself her slave. He was a personable young gentleman, and if anything went wrong with Georgie, he would drop in twice or thrice in the day to see the little chap without thinking of a fee. He would bring Georgie lozenges, and made such sweet mixtures for him that it was quite a pleasure to the child to be ailing. He and Dr. Pestler sat up two whole nights by the boy in that awful week when Georgie had the measles, and when you would have thought, from the mother's terror, that there had never been measles in the world before. Did they sit up for little Polly Clapp, the landlord's daughter, who caught the disease from Georgie? No, they pronounced hers a slight case which would cure itself, and sent her a draught or two. Again, there was the little French chevalier opposite who gave lessons in French at various schools, at night playing tremulous gavottes on a wheezy old fiddle. Whenever this courteous old man spoke of Mistress Osborne, he would gather his fingers into a bunch and blow them open with a kiss, exclaiming, Ah, la divine créature! He vowed that when Emilia walked, flowers grew under her feet. He called Georgie Cupid and asked him news of Venus, his mamma. And did not Mr. Benny, the mild curate of the chapel, call assiduously upon the widow, dandle the little boy on his knee, and offer to teach him Latin, to the anger of his sister, who kept house for him? There is nothing in her, Bailby, 
his sister would say. When she comes to tea, she does not speak a word. She is a poor lackadaisical creature, and it is only her pretty face which you gentlemen admire so. Very likely, Miss Binney was right. It is the pretty face which creates sympathy in the hearts of men. A woman may possess the wisdom of Minerva, and we give no heed to her, if she is plain. And so, with their usual sense of justice, ladies argue that because a woman is handsome, therefore she is a fool. Oh, my dear sisters, there are some of us who are neither handsome nor wise. These are but trivial incidents. During the seven years after the birth of Amelia's son, the most notable event that occurred to her was Georgie's measles. And one day, greatly to her wonder, the Reverend Mr. Binney asked her to marry him. With deep blushes and tears in her eyes, she thanked him, but said that she could never think of any but the husband whom she had lost. On the 25th of April and the 18th of June, the days of her marriage and widowhood, she kept to her room. On other days, she was more active, teaching George to read, write, and draw. She taught the child, to the best of her humble power, to acknowledge the Maker of all, and every night and morning they prayed together, asking God to bless dear Papa, as if he were in the room to wash and dress this young gentleman, to take him for a run in the mornings, to make him the most ingenious outfits for which the thrifty widow cut up every bit of finery she possessed, occupied her many hours of the day. Others she spent at the service of her parents. She played cribbage with her father and sang for him. She wrote out his letters, prospectuses, and projects, it was in her handwriting that the old gentleman's acquaintances were informed that he had become an agent for the Anti-Cinder Coal Company and could supply the public with the best coals. One of these papers was sent to Major Dobbin through his agents, but the Major, being in Madras at the time, had no call for coals. He knew, though, the hand which had written the prospectus. Good God! What would he not have given to hold it in his own? A second prospectus followed, informing the Major that J. Sedley and Company offer to their friends and the public the finest ports, sherries, and claret wines at reasonable prices. Dobbin furiously canvassed the Governor, the Commander-in-Chief, the regiments, and everybody he knew, and sent home to Sedley and Company orders for wine, which perfectly astonished Mr. Sedley and Mr. Clapp, who was the C.O. in the business. But no more orders came after that first burst of good fortune. The curses of the mess-room assailed Mr. Dobbin for the vile drinks he had introduced— and he bought back a great quantity of the wine at an enormous loss to himself. As for Joss, who had been promoted to the revenue board at Calcutta, he was wild with rage when the post brought him a bundle of these prospectuses with a note from his father telling Joss that he had consigned a quantity of select wines to him, as per invoice, asking for payment. Joss refused the bills with scorn and wrote back, bidding the old gentleman to mind his own affairs. 
Sedley and company had to pay for the order with the profits which they had made from Madras, and with some of Emmy's savings. Besides her pension of fifty pounds a year, there had been five hundred pounds left in the agent's hands at Osborne's death, which Dobbin, as George's guardian, proposed to invest at eight percent in an Indian house of agency. Mr. Sedley, who thought the Major had some roguish intentions about the money, went to the agents to protest, and he learned, to his surprise, that the late captain had not left anywhere near five hundred pounds, and that it must be a separate sum of which Major Dobbin knew the details. Old Sedley pursued the Major and demanded a statement of the late captain's accounts. Dobbin's stammering, blushing, and awkwardness added to the other's convictions that he had a rogue to deal with, and in a majestic tone he stated his belief that the Major was unlawfully keeping his late son-in-law's money. Dobbin, at this, lost all patience, and if his accuser had not been so old and so broken, a quarrel might have ensued. "'Come upstairs, sir,' said the Major." "'and I will show which is the injured party, poor George or I.' "'Dragging the old gentleman up to his room, "'he produced Osborne's accounts "'and a bundle of IOUs which George had given. "'He paid his bills in England,' Dobbin said, "'but he had not a hundred pounds in the world when he fell. "'I and one or two of his brother officers "'made up the little sum, "'which was all that we could spare.' And you dare tell us that we are trying to cheat the widow and the orphan? Sedley was very contrite, though in fact William Dobbin had told him a great falsehood, having himself given every shilling of the money. Amelia herself had never given any thought to all this. She trusted to Major Dobbin as an accountant, took his somewhat confused calculations for granted, and never suspected how much he was in his debt. Twice or thrice a year, as promised, she wrote him letters, all about little Georgie. How he treasured them! Whenever Amelia wrote, he answered, and not until then. But he sent over endless gifts to his godson and to her, a box of scarves and a grand ivory set of chessmen from China with real swords and shields and the castles on the backs of elephants. These chessmen delighted Georgie, who wrote his first letter in acknowledgment of this gift. Dobbin sent over preserves and pickles, which Georgie tried surreptitiously and half killed himself with eating. They were so hot. Emmy wrote a comical little account of this mishap to the Major. It pleased him to think that she could be merry sometimes now. He sent over a pair of shawls, a white one for her and a black one with palm leaves for her mother, worth fifty guineas apiece at the very least, as Mrs. Sedley knew. She wore hers in state to church and was congratulated by her female friends. Oh, what a pity it is she won't think of him, Mrs. Sedley remarked to Mrs. Clapp, 
Joss never sends such presents, and grudges us everything. The Major is clearly head over heels in love with her, and yet whenever I hint at it, she begins to cry and goes and sits upstairs with her miniature. Oh, I am sick of that miniature. I wish we had never seen those odious Osbornes. Amidst such humble scenes, George's early youth was past. The boy grew up delicate, sensitive, imperious, women-bred, domineering his gentle mother and ruling the rest of the little world around him. The elders were amazed at his haughty manner and his likeness to his father. He asked questions about everything, astonishing his old grandfather. The small circle about Georgie believed that the boy had no equal upon the earth. Georgie inherited his father's pride, and perhaps thought they were not wrong. When he was about six, Dobbin began to write to him. The Major wanted to hear that Georgie was going to school, or would he have a good tutor at home? It was time that he should begin to learn, and Dobbin hinted that he hoped to be allowed to pay for the boy's education. The Major, in a word, was always thinking about Amelia and her little boy, and through his agents sent him picture books, paint boxes, and desks. Three days before Georgie's sixth birthday, a gentleman in a gig drove up to Mr. Sedley's house and asked to see Master George Osborne. It was a military tailor who came at the Major's order to measure the young gentleman for a suit. Sometimes, too, by the Major's desire, no doubt, his sisters would call in the family carriage to take Amelia and the little boy for a drive. This kind patronage was very uncomfortable to Amelia, but she bore it meekly, and the carriage and its splendors gave little Georgie immense pleasure. The ladies begged occasionally that the child might pass a day with them, and he was always glad to go to their fine house where there were grapes in the hothouses and peaches on the walls. One day they kindly came over to Amelia with news which they were sure would delight her about their dear William. What was it? Was he coming home? she asked with pleasure. Oh, no, but they had good reason to believe that dear William was about to be married, and to a relation of a very dear friend of Amelia's, to Miss Glorvina O'Dowd, who had gone out to join Lady O'Dowd, a very beautiful and accomplished girl, everybody said. Amelia said, Oh, she was very happy, although, but, oh, yes, she was very happy indeed. She took George in her arms and kissed him, and her eyes were quite moist when she put the child down. She scarcely spoke a word during the drive, though she was so very happy indeed. Chapter 39 A Cynical Chapter We now return to some old Hampshire acquaintances whose hopes of inheritance were so woefully disappointed. It was a heavy blow to Bute Crawley to receive only five thousand pounds from Miss Crawley's estate. Once he had paid his own debts and Jim's, very little remained to portion off his four plain daughters. Mrs. Bute never knew, or at least never acknowledged, how far her own tyrannous behavior had ruined her husband. 
She vowed that she had done all that woman could do. Was it her fault if she was not as hypocritical as her nephew, Pitt Crawley? At least the money will remain in the family, she said. Pitt will never spend it, my dear, for a greater miser does not exist. So Mrs. Bute, after the first shock, began to adjust to her altered fortunes and to save with all her might. She invented a thousand methods to conceal poverty. She took her daughters to public places with praiseworthy energy. She entertained her friends hospitably at the rectory. Nobody would have supposed that the family had been disappointed in their expectations or have guessed how she pinched and starved at home. Her girls appeared perseveringly at the Winchester assemblies. They went to cows for the balls and regattas, and their carriage, with the horses taken from the plough, was at work perpetually until it began almost to be believed that the four sisters had had fortunes left them by their aunt, of whom the family spoke only with gratitude. I know no sort of lying which is more frequent in Vanity Fair than this. People who practice it fancy that they are exceedingly virtuous because they are able to deceive the world about their means. Mrs. Bute certainly thought herself one of the most virtuous women in England, and the sight of her happy family was an edifying one. They were so cheerful, so loving, so well-educated, so simple. Martha painted flowers exquisitely and furnished half the charity bazaars in the county. Emma's verses in the Hampshire Telegraph were the glory of its poet's corner. Fanny and Matilda sang duets together, Mamma playing the piano, and the other two sisters sitting with their arms round each other's waists and listening affectionately. Nobody saw the poor girls drumming at the duets in private. No one saw Mamma drilling them rigidly, hour after hour. Everything that a respectable mother could do, Mrs. Bute did. She got over yachting men from Southampton, parsons from the cathedral close at Winchester, and officers from the barracks. She tried to inveigle the young barristers at assizes and encouraged Jim to bring home friends with whom he went hunting. Between such a woman and her brother-in-law, the odious baronet, there could be very little in common. The rupture between Bute and his brother, Sir Pitt, was complete. Indeed, Sir Pitt scandalized the whole county. His dislike for respectable society increased with age, and no gentleman's carriage had passed his gates since Pitt and Lady Jane paid a visit after their marriage. That was an awful visit, remembered by the family with horror. Pitt begged his wife never to speak of it, and it was only through Mrs. Bute, who still knew everything which took place at the hall, that the nature of Sir Pitt's reception of his son and daughter-in-law was ever known. As they drove up the avenue of the park, Pitt remarked with dismay great gaps among the trees— his trees, which the old baronet was felling without permission. The park wore an aspect of utter dreariness and ruin. The neat carriage floundered in muddy pools along the road. The great sweep in front of the terrace and entrance stair was black and covered with moss, 
The flower beds were rank and weedy. After much ringing of the bell, the door was unbarred. An individual in ribbons was seen flitting up the stairs, as Horrocks at length admitted Pitt and Lady Jane. He led the way into Sir Pitt's library, where the tobacco fumes were strong. The library looked out on the front. Sir Pitt had opened one of the windows and was bawling out to a servant who was about to take the baggage down from the carriage. "'Don't move them trunks!' he cried. "'It's only a morning visit, Tucker, you fool!' "'How do, Pitt? How do, my dear? Come to see the old man, eh? Oh, God, you've a pretty face. You ain't like that old horse, your mother. Come and give old Pitt a kiss like a good little gal.' The embrace disconcerted his daughter-in-law, but she submitted. "'Oh, Pitt has got fat,' said the baronet. "'Does he read very long sermons, my dear? "'Oh, go and get a glass of Momsey and a cake "'for my Lady Jane Horrocks, you great big booby, "'and don't stand there like a fat pig. "'I won't ask you to stay, my dear. "'You'll find it too stupid. "'I'm an old man now and like my own ways "'and my pipe and backgammon of the night.' "'I can play that gammon, sir,' said Lady Jane, laughing. "'I used to play with Papa, didn't I, Mr. Crawley?' "'Lady Jane can play, sir,' Pitt said haughtily. "'But she won't stay for all that. "'Now go back to Mudbury or drive down to the rectory and ask Booty for dinner. "'He'll be charmed to see you. "'He's so much obliged to you for getting the old woman's money.' <laughs> "'I perceive, sir.' said Pitt, with a heightened voice, that your people are cutting down the timber? Oh, very fine weather for this time of year, Sir Pitt answered, suddenly grown deaf. But I'm getting old now. I'm not very far from fourscore. <laughs> he laughed, took snuff, and leered at Lady Jane. I've been cruel bad this year with the lumbago. I shan't be here for long, but I'm glad you've come. Oh, I like your face, Lady Jane, and I'll give you something pretty, my dear, to go to court in. He shuffled across the room to a cupboard from which he took a little old case containing jewels. Take that, said he. It belonged to my mother. Pretty pearls. Never gave him the ironmonger's daughter. <laughs> Take him and put him away quick, said he thrusting the case into his daughter-in-law's hand and shutting the cabinet as Horrocks entered with refreshments. "'What have you been and given Pitt's wife?' said the individual in ribbons after Pitt and Lady Jane had left. It was Miss Horrocks, the butler's daughter, the cause of the scandal throughout the county, the lady who reigned now almost supreme at Queen's Crawley. The rise and progress of those ribbons had been marked with dismay by the family. The ribbons opened an account at the Mudbury Bank. The ribbons drove to church in the pony chaise. The servants were dismissed at her wish. The Scotch gardener, who still lingered, found the ribbons eating his peaches one morning at the south wall and had his ears boxed when he remonstrated with her. He and his family... The only respectable inhabitants of Queen's Crawley were forced to leave, and the stately gardens went to waste. Only two or three domestics shuddered in the bleak old servants' hall. The stables and offices were shut up, 
and half ruined. Sir Pitt lived in private and boozed nightly with Horrocks and the abandoned ribbons. He quarrelled with his agents by letter. The lawyers and farm bailiffs who had to do business with him could only reach him through the ribbons, and so the baronet's daily perplexities increased and his embarrassments multiplied. The horror of his correct son Pitt Crawley at these reports may be imagined. Pitt trembled daily lest he should hear that the ribbons was proclaimed his legal stepmother. After that visit, his father's name was never mentioned in Pitt's genteel establishment. It was the skeleton in his house, and all the family walked by it in terror and silence. Sir Pitt was cut dead by his old acquaintance, but he put his hands in his pockets and burst out laughing. Miss Horrocks was installed as housekeeper and ruled the servants with great majesty. They were told to address her as Madame, and there was one little maid who persisted in calling her My Lady without receiving any rebuke. "'There has been better ladies, and there has been worse, Sir Hester,' was Miss Horrocks' reply. So she ruled, having supreme power over all except her father.' whom, however, she treated haughtily, warning him not to be too familiar towards one as was to be a baronet's lady. Indeed, she rehearsed that exalted position with great satisfaction to the amusement of old Sir Pitt, who chuckled at her airs and graces. He swore it was as good as a play, and he made her put on one of the first Lady Crawley's court dresses, swearing, entirely with Miss Horrocks' agreement, that it suited her greatly. She ransacked the wardrobes of the two defunct ladies and hacked their finery so as to suit her own tastes and figure. She would have liked their jewels, too, but the old baronet had locked them away in his cabinet. Though the good people of the parsonage shunned the hall, yet they knew all that happened there and were looking out every day for the catastrophic marriage. But fate intervened. One day the baronet surprised her ladyship, as he called the ribbons, seated at the old and tuneless piano in the drawing-room and squalling in imitation of the music which he had sometimes heard. The little kitchen-maid was standing at her mistress's side, wagging her head and crying, "'Oh, lor, ma'am, tis pitiful! Oh!' This made the old baronet roar with laughter. He narrated the incident a dozen times to Horrocks during the evening, greatly to the discomfiture of Miss Horrocks. He squalled in imitation of her singing, and vowed that with such a beautiful voice she ought to have singing-masters.' He was in great spirits that night, drank an extraordinary quantity of rum and water, and went to bed very late. Half an hour afterwards, there was a great bustle in the house. Lights moved from window to window in the desolate old hall. A boy on a pony went galloping off to Mudbury to the doctor's house, and in another hour, by which fact we see how carefully Mrs. Bute Crawley had kept up an understanding with the great house, that lady, with the Reverend Bute and their son James, had walked over from the rectory and entered the mansion by the open door. They passed through the hall and the small oak parlour where the empty rum bottle stood on the table. 
They entered Sir Pitt's study, where they found Miss Horrocks of the Ribbons wildly trying the desks with a bunch of keys. She dropped them with a scream of terror. "'Look at that, Mr. Crawley!' cried Mrs. Pute, pointing at the scared, guilty wench. "'He gave him me!' she cried. "'Gave him you, you abandoned creature!' screamed Mrs. Pute. "'Bear witness, Mr. Crawley. We found this good-for-nothing woman in the act of stealing your brother's property, and she will be hanged, as I always said she would.' Betsy Horrocks flung herself down on her knees, bursting into tears. "'But a really good woman is in no hurry to forgive. The humiliation of an enemy is a triumph to her soul. "'Ring the bell, James!' Mrs. Butte said. The servants came at the jangling summons. "'Put that woman in the strong room,' she said. "'We caught her in the act of robbing Sir Pitt. "'Mr. Crawley, you'll make out her committal, "'and Biddows, you'll drive her over in the morning to Southampton Jail. "'My dear,' interposed the magistrate and rector, "'she's only—' "'Are there no handcuffs?' Mrs. Butte continued. "'Where's the creature's abominable father?' He, "'He did give him me,' cried poor Betsy Horrocks. "'Didn't he, Hester? "'You saw Sir Pitt giving me the day after Mudbury Fair.' "'Law, Betsy, how could you tell such a wicked story?' "'said Hester, the little kitchen-maid. "'And to Madame Crawley, so good and kind. "'And you may search all my boxes, ma'am, I'm sure. "'And here's my keys, as I'm an honest girl. "'And if you find so much as a beggarly bit of lace, "'may I never go to church again.' Oh, "'Give up your keys, you hardened hussy,' "'hissed Mrs. Butte at Betsy. "'Here's a candle, ma'am, and if you please, I can show you her room, "'where she keeps heaps and heaps of things, ma'am,' cried out the eager little Hester. "'Hold your tongue, if you please. I know the room. "'Mrs. Brown, come with me. "'And Beddows, don't you lose sight of that woman,' said Mrs. Butte, seizing the candle. "'Mr. Crawley, you had better go upstairs and see that they are not murdering your unfortunate brother.' Butte went upstairs and found the doctor with the frightened Horrocks bending over his master in a chair. They were trying to bleed Sir Pitt. In the early morning, an express message was sent off to Mr. Pitt Crawley by the rector's lady, who assumed command of everything and had watched the old baronet through the night. He had been brought back to a sort of life. He could not speak, but seemed to recognize people. Mrs. Butte kept resolutely by his bedside. She did not close her fiery black eyes once, though the doctor snored in the armchair. Horrocks made some efforts to assert his authority, but Mrs. Butte called him a tipsy old wretch and bade him never show his face again in that house, or he should be transported like his abominable daughter. Terrified, he slunk down to the oak parlor. He was ordered to get another bottle of rum, which he fetched, and to which the rector and his son sat down, ordering Horrocks to put down the keys and leave. Cowed, Horrocks gave up the keys, and he and his daughter slunk off silently through the night and abandoned possession of the house of Queen's Crawley. Chapter 40 in which Becky is recognized by the family.
Though the old baronet survived many months, he never completely recovered the use of his intellect or his speech. The estate was governed by his elder son. In a strange condition, Pitt found it. Old Sir Pitt was always buying and mortgaging. He had twenty men of business and quarrels with each. He had lawsuits with all his tenants, his lawyers, the mining and dock companies in which he had a share, and with every person with whom he had business. To unravel these difficulties was a task worthy of the orderly pit, and he set to work. His whole family moved to Queen's Crawley, and Lady Southdown came too, bringing her irregular clergy to the dismay of the angry Mrs. Butte. Mrs. Butte's threats to Miss Betsy Horrocks were not carried out. Betsy's father took over the Crawley Arms in the village, of which he had got a lease from Sir Pitt. He had obtained a small freehold there likewise, which gave him a vote for the borough. The rector had another of these votes, and these and four others formed the electorate which returned the two members of Parliament for Queen's Crawley. There was a show of courtesy kept up between the rectory and the hall ladies, between the younger ones at least, for Mrs. Butte and Lady Southdown could never meet without battles. Lady Southdown kept to her room when the ladies from the rectory visited. Perhaps Mr. Pitt was not displeased at these occasional absences of his mamma-in-law. Sometimes she commanded him too much. To be treated as a boy at forty-six was certainly mortifying. Lady Jane yielded up everything to her mother. It was lucky for her that Lady Southdown's meetings with ministers and correspondence with missionaries so occupied her that she had little time to devote to her grandchildren. As for old Sir Pitt, he retired into those same rooms where Lady Crawley had lived, and was tended by Miss Hester with constant care. What love, what fidelity is there equal to that of a nurse with good wages? They get up at nights, they bear complaints, they see the sun shining and don't want to go out. They sleep on armchairs and eat their meals in solitude. They pass long, long evenings doing nothing. On sunshiny days, this old gentleman was taken out in a chair on the terrace. Lady Jane always walked by the old man and was a favorite with him. He used to smile when she came in and utter inarticulate moans when she was going away. When the door shut upon her, he would cry and sob, whereupon Hester's face and manner, which was always exceedingly bland while her lady was present, would change at once, and she would clench her fist and scream, "'Hold your tongue, you stupid old fool!' and twirl away his chair from the fire, which he loved to look at, at which he would cry more. For this was all that was left after years of cunning, drinking, scheming, and selfishness. A whimpering old idiot put in and out of bed, and cleaned and fed like a baby. At last a day came when the nurse's task was over. Early one morning, when Pitt Crawley was in the study, a knock came to the door, and Hester presented herself, curtsied, and said, "'If you please, Sir Pitt. Sir Pitt died this morning, Sir Pitt. I was the making of his toast for his gruel, and I, and I thought I heard a moan like—' 
Sir Pitt, and eh, uh, she dropped another curtsy. What was it that made Pitt's pale face flush? Was it because he was Sir Pitt at last, with a seat in Parliament? I'll clear the estate now, he thought, rapidly calculating the improvements which he would make. All the blinds were pulled down at the hall and rectory. The church bell was tolled. Miss Betsy, who was by this time married to a saddler at Mudbury, cried a good deal. "'Shall I write to your brother, or will you?' asked Lady Jane of her husband, Sir Pitt. "'I will write,' he said, "'and invite him to the funeral.' "'And, and Mrs. Rawdon?' said Lady Jane timidly. "'Jane!' said Lady Southdown. "'How can you think of such a thing?' "'Mrs. Rawdon must, of course, be asked,' said Sir Pitt resolutely. "'Not whilst I am in the house,' said Lady Southdown. "'Your ladyship will be pleased to recollect that I am the head of this family,' Sir Pitt replied. "'Lady Jane, please write to Mrs. Rawdon Crawley, requesting her presence upon this melancholy occasion.' "'Jane, I forbid you to put pen to paper,' cried the Countess. "'I believe I am the head of this family,' Sir Pitt repeated, "'and however much I may regret any circumstance which may lead to your ladyship quitting this house, I must govern it as I see fit.' Lady Southdown rose magnificently and ordered that horses might be put to her carriage. If her son and daughter turned her out of their house, she would hide her sorrows somewhere in loneliness and pray for their conversion to better thoughts. "'We don't turn you out of our house, Mamma," said the timid Lady Jane imploringly. "'You invite such company to it as no Christian lady should meet, and I will have my horses tomorrow morning.' "'Please write this, Jane.' said Sir Pitt, rising in an attitude of command. Queen's Crawley, September 14th. My dear brother. Hearing these decisive words, Lady Southdown, who had been waiting for a sign of weakness from her son-in-law, rose and with a scared look left the library. Lady Jane looked as if she would follow, but Pitt forbade his wife to move. She won't go away, he said. "'She has let her house at Brighton. "'I have been waiting long for an opportunity "'to take this decisive step, my love, "'and now, if you please, we will resume the dictation. "'My dear brother, the melancholy news, "'which it is my duty to convey, "'must have been long anticipated, etc., etc. "'Pitt, having come to his kingdom and his fortune, "'was determined to treat his family kindly, and respectably, and make a house of Queen's Crawley once more. It pleased him to think that he should be its chief. He proposed to use his influence to get his brother placed, and his cousins decently provided for. In the course of three or four days' reign, his bearing was changed, and his plans quite fixed. He determined to rule justly and honestly." to depose Lady Southdown, and to be on the friendliest terms possible with all his relations. So he dictated a letter to his brother Rawdon, 
a solemn and elaborate letter containing the profoundest observations and filling his simple little secretary with wonder. What an orator he will be, thought she, when he enters the House of Commons. How wise and good and what a genius my husband is! The fact is, Pitt Crawley had composed the letter long before he dictated it to his astonished wife. This letter, with a black border and seal, was sent to Colonel Rawdon Crawley. He was only half pleased at receiving it. Oh, what's the use of going down to that stupid place? thought he. I can't stand being alone with Pitt after dinner, and horses there and back will cost us twenty pound. He carried the letter, as he did all difficulties, to Becky in her bedroom, with her chocolate, which he always made for her of a morning. She took up the black-edged missive, and having read it, jumped up, crying, Hooray! and waving the note round her head. Hooray! said Rawdon, wondering at the little figure capering about in a streaming flannel dressing-gown. He's not left us anything, Becky! I had my share when I came of age. You'll never be of age, you silly old man, Becky replied. Run out now and get some black crepe on your hat and a black waistcoat. Order it for tomorrow so that we may be able to start on Thursday. You don't mean to go. Of course I mean to go. I mean Lady Jane to present me at court next year. I mean your brother to give you a seat in Parliament, you stupid old creature. I mean Lord Steyne to have your vote, my dear old silly man, and you shall be an Irish secretary or a West Indian governor or some such thing. Going by post-chase will cost a deuce of a lot of money, grumbled the colonel. Roddy goes, of course. No, why pay for an extra place? Let him stay here in the nursery with Briggs. "'Go and do as I bid you, and you had best tell Sparks that old Sir Pitt is dead "'and that you will come in for some money. "'He'll tell Braggles, who has been pressing for rent.' "'Becky began sipping her chocolate. "'When Lord Steyne arrived in the evening, "'he found Becky and her companion, who was no other than our friend Briggs, "'busy cutting, ripping, and snipping all sorts of black stuff for the melancholy occasion.' "'Sir Pitt Crawley is dead, my lord,' Rebecca said. "'We have been tearing our hair with grief all the morning, "'and now we are tearing up our old clothes.' "'So that old scoundrel's dead, is he?' "'My lord said. "'What an old Salinas he was.' "'I might have been Salinas's widow,' said Rebecca. "'Don't you remember, Miss Briggs, "'how you peeped in at the door "'and saw old Sir Pitt on his knees to me?' Miss Briggs blushed very much, and was glad when Lord Steyne ordered her to go downstairs and make him a cup of tea. Briggs was the house-dog whom Rebecca had wanted as guardian of her reputation. Miss Crawley had left Briggs a little annuity. She would have been content to remain with Lady Jane, who was good to her, but Lady Southdown dismissed her. Bowles and Firkin likewise received their legacies and their dismissals, and married and set up a lodging-house. Briggs tried to live with her relations in the country, but found that her family quarrelled over her forty pounds a year as eagerly as Miss Crawley's kinsfolk had over that lady's inheritance. 
Briggs's brother called her purse-proud because she would not advance her money to stock his shop, while her sister told her that their brother was on the verge of bankruptcy and wanted Miss Briggs to send her own son to college. Between them, the two families got a great portion of her private savings, and finally she fled to London, determined to seek for servitude again as infinitely less burdensome than liberty, and advertising in the papers that a gentlewoman of agreeable manners and accustomed to the best society was anxious to blah, 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 etc., etc., she took up her residence in Mr. Bowles' lodging house and awaited the result. Rebecca's dashing little carriage was whirling down the street one day, just as Miss Briggs reached Mr. Bowles' door after a weary walk to the Times office to insert her advertisement for the sixth time. Rebecca at once recognized Briggs. She pulled up the ponies and, jumping out, took hold of both Briggs's hands. Briggs cried and Becky laughed and kissed her, and they went into Mrs. Bowles' front parlor, where Briggs told all her history, with sniffles, and Becky gave a narrative of her own life with her usual candor. Becky instantly decided that this was just such a companion as would suit her, and she invited Briggs to dinner with her that very evening, when she should see Becky's dear little darling Rawdon. Mrs. Bowles, late Firkin, came and listened grimly in the passage. Becky had never been a favorite of hers. She did not like Raggle's account of the colonel's husband. "'I wouldn't trust him, Rag, my boy,' Mr. Bowles remarked, and his wife, when Mrs. Rawdon left the parlor, saluted the lady with a very sour curtsy. With the sweetest of smiles towards Miss Briggs, Rebecca whirled away into Piccadilly, and next morning was in the park with half a dozen dandies cantering after her carriage. Mrs. Bowles cautioned Miss Briggs, "'You will rue it, Miss B. Mark my words,' and Briggs promised to be very cautious. The upshot was that she went to live with Mrs. Rawdon the next week— and had lent Rawdon Crawley six hundred pounds upon annuity before six months were over. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.